This is a big year. The Ohio Lottery's golden anniversary. 50 years of excitement, of growing jackpots and crossed fingers. 50 years of funding for schools, of changed lives and brightened days. 50 years of fun. And that is worth celebrating. So watch for can't-miss promotions, huge events, and new games that will make the Ohio Lottery's 50th year its biggest one yet. Learn more at funturns50.com. Capella University is rethinking higher education. With their game-changing FlexPath format, you can earn your degree on your schedule, so you can fit education seamlessly into your life. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. First degree. First degree. First degree. First degree. First degree. The first degree. These things are supposed to happen in movies, not in real life. And just the blatant fact of like, how could somebody that I let close to me or or almost let even closer to me be a murderer? Welcome to The First Degree, the true crime podcast that you might end up on. And I know we cut this out, but I already screwed up in the first one second of this intro. Nobody's perfect. It's going to be a good day, guys. Um, Before we begin our podcast, I need to let everybody know that we just dropped some fucking fantastic merch. And you need to go over to thefirstdegreepodcast.com, click on store, and go shop your hearts out. We have three t-shirts that are amazing and one sweatshirt that is even more amazing. Heck yeah. Yes, absolutely. What are your guys' favorite items of merch? Just let me know before we begin. I really like the one with the emojis with the yeah. two blonde girls and the vamp vampire, yeah. Billy. The two girls, one goth one is, is probably my favorite. It's our Killing Time exclusive tee. It says Killing Time with two girls, one goth with our little faces on it as emojis. Yes. Um you know, for the, for the Killing Time fans. And then we have a Talk Murder to Me tea. Only you can pre- prevent serial killers. And then a hoodie for all the Deep Cuts fans with nice little references to all of our inside jokes. That's yes. awesome. Jack did an amazing job designing it. Thanks, guys. So go shop. Fantastic. They won't be available for long. Uh, they will sell out soon. So thefirstdegreepodcast.com. All right, Billy. What day is it today? Well, I also want to remind everyone to leave a review. Please do. Yes. And also to follow us on on our Facebook group and on Instagram. Nice. Doing a little shout out. Doing a little shout out. Yes. So um, today is July 21st. There's a lot going on here. There are so many days today. Invite an alien to live with you day. Whoa. No. All right. Wait. You know what? Open invitation. No, thank you. <laughs> National Hot Dog Day. Gross. And if you haven't listened to Killing Time, a few weeks ago we had an insane debate about if a hot dog has a sandwich or not. So you need to check that out. National Junk Food Day. All right. I did have nuggets today. Yeah, so exactly. And I did have a Big Mac today. I, I feel I okay just, about that. I just had some goldfish. Eh, it's not so bad. They give those to kids. Take a monkey to lunch day. Mm, that sounds like captivity to me. I'm, I'm, all, into that. I'm all for this. Sounds national like disease. National Tug of War Tournament Day. When was the last time that either of you were in a tug of war? With an animal? All the time. With a person? <laughs> not so much. I don't know if I've actually played tug of war before. I feel like I've only seen it in at like camp when you shows. Would, camp yeah. when you would do like 
big team tug Color of war and stuff. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. And it's also take your poet to work day. Which I think that we've had this day before. And then we went into this whole spiel about Billy being a poet. I'm your poet. Um, as the author of the Costanza stanzas, yes. I'm the resident poet and you're all bringing me to work. So here we are. And again, another Killing Time reference. Alexis uh, leads us off into the night every Killing Time with a poem about George Costanza. So, And when I think they're bad, they're usually the best. Yes. yes. You really, I mean, each one is better than the last. You guys. So. I love Thank it. Thank you. All right. Well, I think that that is enough of that. So let's turn down the lights. And turn up your anxiety. Because this could be you. In most murder cases, investigators look to certain groups of people as the first possible suspects. They generally start with the people closest to the victim and work their way outward. You all know this if you're avid true crime consumers. They look towards longtime friends, scorned lovers, business partners, or in some instances, even resentful family members. It's a sinister realization that those closest to you are actually the most likely to kill you. A partner you've been sharing a bed with for years, a parent sleeping on the other end of a house. These are the people most likely to kill you. The irony, of course, is our whole lives were told not to talk to strangers, when you may actually be safer around them after all. Today's case takes us back to Monday, November 15th of 2004. Songs on the charts included Usher's My Boo, Nelly's Over and Over, and Destiny Child's Lose My Breath. Movies like The Polar Express, Seed of Chucky, and Bridget Jones' The Edge of Reason were in theaters. And the setting for today's case is Del Mar, New York. This community sits just west of Albany with one major road, Delaware Avenue, that connects the two areas. In 2005, Money Magazine named Del Mar one of the best places to live in America, rating it 22nd best among all great American towns. And here's our first great Alex, who remembers what it was like when she was a teenager. I grew up in a little suburb of Albany called Del Mar, which is uh, an even smaller portion of the greater town of Bethlehem, which is the high school that me and Chris went to. The area that we were in is like a middle upper class suburban neighborhood. Like, I think my house was built in the 70s, had a really nice property, pool in the back, lived on a cul-de-sac, like small town, local deli, really, really cute. Alex paints the picture of a charmed suburban upbringing. It seems like a nice and comfortable lifestyle that some people might take for granted as they get older. You just heard Alex mention a guy named Chris. She's talking about Chris Porco. Alex and Chris attended Bethlehem High School, and he was just a year ahead of her. But y'all know the drill. Before we get into the details of today's case, we need to go back, you guessed it, to the beginning. Alex recalls meeting Chris Porco in the beginning of high school. I graduated 2003, he graduated 2002, and I want to Say, I remember knowing him through like most of high school. So we probably met my 
freshman or sophomore year because he was really good friends with my best friend's older brother. So we were both hanging out at their house at the same time, which is how I met him. So that was, I guess, early 2000s, I guess that would put that at. So what was Chris like? He was like a tall, lanky, nerdy looking dude. I think he was over six feet tall. I want to say he was like maybe even six, like six, two, six, three glasses, really even tempered, good sense of humor. He wasn't like a fully like nerdy guy. He kind of just had that look, but he was on the swim team. So he was like sort of jockey, sort of nerdy, just like a really normal high school dude. Nothing really stuck out about him besides him being super tall. Okay, so we are looking at a picture of Chris from what I am assuming is some kind of a dance, maybe a homecoming prom Um, kind of a situation. He's in a little tux with a bow tie. He's got a boutonniere uh, pinned to his chest. His chest. He's got glasses on, has a cute little smile, a little short haircut with a little some flowies up at the top and just looks like a kind of nerdy kind of average average Joe average dude. So Chris wasn't just on the school swim team, as Alex mentioned. He was also co-captain. So he was someone others would have looked up to, figuratively, and literally because homie was 6'2". How tall are you, Billy? 6'4"? 6'4". All right. So maybe not you, but most of you would. All right. So anyway, Alex said that Chris was sort of a jock and sort of nerdy. And he actually scored 1400 on his SAT exams, which if you didn't know, that puts you in the 95th percentile. So you can pretty much get accepted into like any academic college. And academics is going to play a part in our story later on. But for now, more from Alex. Well, I would say like a lot of the sports people at my school tended to like stick together. So he definitely hung out with like the swim team dudes and he wasn't unpopular by any stretch, but he wasn't like the guy that walked down the hall and was like a popular guy either. I would say he was probably just like an affable guy, got along with a lot of people, definitely did decently with the ladies, especially in my grade because, you know, older guy, (laughs) high school. So Chris was older, taller and good at sports. So you might be able to see how that could be appealing to other girls in school. Even Alex herself found him to be charming. It was like very shortly after I had met him at my best friend Jesse's house. And the original conversation, I don't remember, but I do remember us talking on AIM, of course, because it was the 2000s, talking on AIM for like hours at a time. I think there was one time where we literally were just chatting for seven hours. And I remember him being the first boy who ever called me beautiful, which was like, I mean, as a young girl, that's something that sticks in your mind. And I remember he asked me out on a date once. Ah, yes. Dating in high school. I remember the sheer fear and awkwardness of those good old days. So Chris asked Alex to go out on a date. So what happened? I was just way too much of a chicken and had no self-confidence. So I totally stood him up. And that was sort of like the end of our little romantic aim (laughs) relationship. Okay, so while Alex and Chris's romance was not exactly meant to be, and it was cut short even before it started, they remained good friends. There were no hard or hurt feelings, which was very mature for both of them because sometimes it does not go that way. 
We'd see each other at school dances, football games, whatever social high school things we were doing. And it was always fine. You know, I remember there was one time at a football game, he gave me his sweatshirt and I had his sweatshirt at my house for a few days. And this was like long after he and I had like fizzled our little situationship. So we were always very, still very like cool. On the outside, Chris seemed like your average normal high school guy who was about to graduate and then go on to college. And that's exactly what he did. He graduated from high school. I still had one year left. So he went off to the University of Rochester and I was self-involved with my own high school life. So I think it just kind of fizzled out from there. MySpace and Facebook weren't really a thing at that point. So keeping in touch online after people graduated wasn't as prevalent as it is now. With Chris's excellent SAT score, he got accepted to the University of Rochester, a private four-year college where Chris studied biomedical engineering and economics starting in the fall of 2002. He also joined Sigma Phi Epsilon fraternity and for a short period of time was even involved in the swim team at the university. Chris was kept very busy at school with his massive course load and extracurricular activities. And by all accounts, all was normal with Chris by the fall of 2002, which is around the same time that this strange thing happened at his childhood home in Del Mar. This strange thing had actually occurred while Chris was at home with his parents for Thanksgiving break. And this strange thing was a burglary at the Porco home. The intruder had taken a Macintosh laptop computer and a Dell laptop computer. A camera was also taken, but it was discovered outside the house on the front lawn. And the assumption here was that the burglar likely dropped it when they were rushing to leave the scene. And Chris's parents, 53-year-old Joan and 42-year-old Peter, were understandably very concerned about the break-in. Now, the house itself was two stories, and it sat on a very suburban street. It was tan and brown with an attached garage. And it was a sort of, I'm looking at a picture of it right now, it's what, what's called a neo-colonial. And it sounds, it's very much like the house that I grew up in. Same color scheme, very similar, except I had a one-car garage instead of a two-car garage. And it sat relatively close to the road with neighboring houses only a few feet away on each side of the house. But it was slightly secluded by the trees that circle the perimeter of the back part of the property. It is just a quintessential New York house. Yeah. I mean, every house on Long Island looks like this also. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And this is upstate. But yeah, similar neo-colonial design, as Billy mentioned. But either way, burglaries, if you've experienced one, are always scary. But they happen. And at the time, little meaning was assigned to this incident. It's just some bad luck. It happens to the best of us. But let's dig a little deeper into the Porco family. What do we know about them? Starting with Chris's parents, Peter and Joan, the couple had been married for 30 years and had met in college at the University of Albany, which is where my best friend Rita went. Hi, Rita. Hey, Rita. In 2004, Peter worked in the legal system as a New York State Appellate Division court clerk. Joan was a children's speech pathologist at Jefferson Elementary School in Schenectady, New York. We already know about their son, Chris, who was 19 at this point. But they also had an older son named Jonathan, and he was 22 and in the Navy, stationed in South Carolina. Now, we're looking at a photo of the Porco family right now. You see Chris, you see Jonathan, you see Peter, and you see Joan. They really do look like the picture of suburban bliss. They really do, which is like the the perfect little family. Yeah, they're attractive. They're dressed sharply. They, uh, They look great, you know? 
it's just normal, normal like sort of Stepford, New York vibes. Yes. Yeah, she's she's wearing a blue dress with pearls, a pearl necklace. Uh, all the the guys have suits on with ties that are colorful, and almost all of them are smiling. Almost all of them. So back to this burglary. Peter and Joan called the police to report the incident, and an officer arrived at the home to file a report. His name was Detective Chris Bowdish of the Bethlehem Police Department. And when Detective Bowdish arrived, he noted the following in his notes. So the front living room window was open, and someone had torn through the screen. There were also footprints on the lawn, but not much could really be done with these from an investigative standpoint. He noted the items that had been stolen, the laptops, and then the camera that was on the lawn. And Detective Bowdish spoke to Joan and Peter and got the broad strokes about their family. They were a normal couple with two sons, and again, nothing out of the ordinary. So Detective Bowdish filed the report, but then nothing really happened. And we know how this goes. Police reports like this are usually filed for insurance purposes or just to document the occurrence or if there is potentially a, a serial going on in the area, a serial, you know, string of burglary. So it's it's very seldom that items are recovered from a burglary as the result of a police investigation. And in the meantime, the Porco family did what they could to adapt and take precautions and they installed a new security system. After the burglary, the lives of the Porco family returned to relative suburban bliss, as we keep referring to it. Their sleepy neighborhood was quiet, and it remained that way for a long time, two years to be exact. But on the morning of November 15th, 2004, all of that would change. So it was the morning of November 15th. It was a clear and crisp fall day with plenty of sunshine. It was, by all accounts, normal. But one thing wasn't normal. Peter Porco did not report to work at the appeals court that day. And it was unlike Peter to not call if he's going to be late or sick. So by 10.30 a.m., a judge had asked an appellate court officer named Michael Hart to drive by the Porco residence to check on him. When Hart arrived, he noticed that there were no cars in the Porco driveway. He tried calling Peter on his cell phone from outside the home. There was no answer. Hart then approached the front door, and strangely, he noticed that there was a key in the lock. Then he saw the recognizable red hue of blood near the doorknob. Alarmed, Officer Hart calls his boss and tells him about the blood that he spotted on the door. Hart had his phone on speaker as his boss instructed him to walk into the house with his gun drawn. And this is terrifying because this guy has no idea what he could be walking into. On the one hand, maybe this was nothing. Maybe there was some explanation for this. Or maybe Hart was about to walk into a violent situation unfolding in real time. Either way, there was really only one way to find out. And you'll hear exactly what he saw right after this break. When I was growing up, I took French in high school, but I could never get the language to stick. I wanted to be fluent so bad, but it never happened. I just couldn't focus and I couldn't practice enough and it didn't work. But thankfully, there's Rosetta Stone, which is the most trusted language learning program. And it's available on desktop or it can be used as an app on your phone or tablet. 
Rosetta Stone is different. It immerses you in so many ways. And with its intuitive process, you can pick up any language naturally, first with words, then phrases, and then sentences. And before you know it, boom, conversations. Plus, with Rosetta Stone's true accent feature, you'll get feedback on how well you're pronouncing words. It's like having a personal trainer for your accent. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, the first degree listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com slash first. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash first today. Okay, so it comes as no surprise that I have absolutely no idea how to cook. I don't want to learn how to cook. It's not really my thing. But when I tried Factor meals, it was a freaking game changer. So Factor's fresh, never frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. Yeah, two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you'll always have time to enjoy nutritious, great tasting meals. So the first time I tried Factor meals, I was actually blown away because I'm like, that's it. That That's all it is. Two minutes and the meals are so delicious. With 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from every single week, you'll always have new flavors to explore. And you can treat yourself to restaurant quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, ooh, fancy, shrimp, and blackened salmon. Like I said, they're so easy to prepare. I love them. So head to factormeals.com slash degree 50 and use code degree 50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code degree50 at factorymeals.com slash degree50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. It's almost summer and the best and most sustainable way to shop for a new season is on therealreal.com. The Real Real is the largest and most trusted source for authenticated luxury resale. It's the only place you'll find brands like Hermes, Cartier, Prada, Dior, Stodd, Zimmerman, Jacquemus, and more for up to 90% off retail. 10,000 plus new arrivals land every single day from hundreds of brands you love, all authenticated by a team of in-house experts. Whether it's that perfect wedding guest look, a new summer sandal, an updated beach tote, resort wear for your summer vacation, you're bound to find exactly what you're looking for, plus deals you won't get anywhere else on therealreal.com. Visit therealreal.com and use code FIRST at checkout for 20% off. Terms apply. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. After Peter Porco fails to show up at work at the appellate court, caught officer Michael Hart responds to his house to check on him. When he arrived, no cars were in the driveway. There was a key in the front door and what appeared to be blood next to the lock. After calling his boss, he got the green light to walk into the house with his gun drawn. Hart walks in, and he immediately hears the barking of a dog from behind a doggy gate in the doorway that leads to a basement. Then Hart notices a bifold closet door that is covered in rag stains. Just beyond it on the floor 
he sees Peter lying at the bottom of a flight of stairs. He's completely covered in blood. His body is lying on the right side, facing upwards, as if he was going up the stairs. His shirt was pulled up, his eyes wide open, and his head had a huge gash in it, but that was just the tip of the iceberg when it comes to his injuries. So police would later say it looked as if Peter had been beheaded to a degree. Hart tells his boss the Porco home is quote-unquote a crime scene and to call the police. 911, what's the location of the emergency? Rockley Drive, Del Mar, New York. Okay. Hey, what's the problem? There is a, a 55-year-old white male down on the ground. We have a court officer on the scene. He's unresponsive? He's checking his pulse right now. We're trying to see if there's a pulse. Okay. Keep with me on that. It's a crime scene. It's a crime scene? It's a crime scene. We're being told by the officer on the scene. At this point, Hart is told by his boss to wait outside for the Bethlehem police to arrive. And once they do, two officers uncover an even more startling scene. On the first floor of the home, they notice blood scattered all over the kitchen. And not only that, someone's breakfast, which presumably was Peter's, was still sitting on the counter as if he was about to sit down and eat. So clearly, Peter had been attacked. So officers needed to clear each room of the house to make sure that the attacker wasn't still there, lying in wait so they could strike again. So the officers made their way up the stairs with their guns drawn, and it was difficult because Peter was lying at the base of the stairs. There were three bedrooms upstairs. They went from one room to the next. And once they reached the master, they made a second and equally horrifying discovery. Joan was in bed, but like Peter, she too was covered in blood. Like Peter, Joan had gashes on her head and face. But unlike Peter, Joan was still clinging to life. Despite her catastrophic injuries, Joan could move her arms and legs slightly. Then the officers made another chilling discovery. Sitting at the foot of the bed under the covers was what was presumed to be the weapon used to attack Peter and Joan. It was a fireman's axe, drenched in blood. Transporting Joan to the hospital would prove to be difficult. They couldn't even get an oxygen mask over her face because her wounds were so extensive. The full extent of Joan's injuries would eventually reveal that due to the axe blows, her jaw had been crushed. She had teeth missing. Her left eye was gone and her skull was fractured in several places. She had been hit with heavy axe blows at least three times. Their paramedics also did a quick test to see if Joan was aware of what was happening, and they determined that she could see out of her working eye, and her motor response was still intact, but she wasn't able to speak. But she could nod and shake her head left to right to indicate yes or no. Needless to say, this is a shocking crime, made even more shocking by the small town feel where this crime took place. This was an all-hands-on-deck situation at the Bethlehem Police Department. So it's no surprise that an officer arrived on the scene who recognized this house and recognized this couple who had been attacked. It was Detective Bodish, the officer who had responded to the Porco home about the burglary that had occurred two years earlier. When Bodish arrived, Joan was still on the scene and had not yet been rushed to the hospital, but they were in the process of mobilizing her towards the ambulance. And Detective Bodish knew a bit about the family from his previous interaction with them. 
including that this couple had two sons who no longer lived at home. So the detective approached Joan and attempted to communicate with her. He asked her a series of yes or no questions so Joan could nod her head yes or no. First he asked, could she hear him? She nodded yes. Then he asked, was a family member responsible? And Joan nodded yes. Bodish continued asking, had one of her sons done this? And she nodded her head yes again. He asked if it was Jonathan who attacked her. She nodded no. And lastly, if Chris had attacked her. And she nodded yes. This is fucking crazy. Crazy. Okay, there are things to consider here. This is a very serious accusation. Like, did Joan know what she was saying? Did she actually understand what she was being asked? Remember, she was just struck in the head with an axe. If Joan was correct in her responses to Detective Bodish, then this meant that her son had done this to her and her husband. And if the Porco's son, Chris, was responsible for this, we have to ask ourselves, why, in God's name, would he want to do this to his parents? So the police didn't know what to think. But frankly, starting their investigation with the couple's sons would probably be the place that they would have started in the first place, even if Joan hadn't been able to respond. That's right, because remember what we reminded you of in the beginning of this episode. People close to you generally have far more motive to kill you than strangers do. The fact that there wasn't anything missing from the home, ruling out robbery, also suggested that a stranger was not responsible for this. So already the police had their prime suspect, Chris Porco. But where was he? In the meantime, the focus was placed on saving Joan's life. She was rushed to the hospital where she slipped into a medically induced coma and would undergo several surgeries on her face and skull. Meanwhile, the crime scene was being processed and an all-points bulletin for Chris was issued on every local radio channel. This bulletin identified Chris as the prime suspect in the murder of his father and the attempted murder of his mother. The bulletin warned that Chris would likely be driving a yellow Jeep Wrangler and that he was dangerous. Roughly two hours later, it would not be law enforcement, but rather a reporter from the Times Union newspaper who tracked Chris down. The reporter was trying to call one of his dorm roommates for a comment about the family, and he was floored when Chris himself picked up the phone. The reporter relayed the details of this vicious attack on his parents, and he actually incorrectly told Chris that both of his parents were dead. Then, less than a half hour later, Chris called the police to figure out what was going on. Hi, uh, my name is Chris Porco. I was just called by the Times Union saying that my parents were found dead this afternoon. Um, I was wondering if you had any information on me. Hey, Chris, whereabouts are you? I'm at school in Rochester, New York. Okay, you're at, in Rochester? Yes. A detective is notified that Chris is on the phone and gets on the line to question him. When was the last time you said you came down and saw your parents? Uh, about three weeks ago. Uh, it was on the weekend. Um, I can give you a day. I have, to, I have to figure it out. I'm not really sure. Okay, and the email. What, what's going on with your email? You said you, um, you, you well, emailed him today, but you didn't get a, a response? Yeah, I, I emailed him this afternoon. Uh, my dad at work. Okay. Um, about uh, college loan stuff. About what? College loan stuff. So you will be here probably. You're going to go right to Albany Med? I don't know. I don't even know where my mom is. But Yeah, she is at Albany Med. Okay. Do you know her condition? No, because I haven't talked to her. Okay. So 
This is interesting. So what do we all, all think of this so far? I mean, his voice uh, when he is making these calls about his dead parents, I, I, it could just be me ordering a Postmates order. Yeah. Like that is the the type of emotion and inflection in his voice. It's like trying to pay off a credit card, basically. Yeah. So I really try not to judge people's responses because you just don't know. Some people like go into a trauma Shock. state where they mm-hmm. shut the fuck down and they, they're just on autopilot, right? They're like in this very mechanical sort of state. That being said, the mom also shook her head yes about him being the attacker. So with those two things combined, I feel like I can condemn him a bit more where I'm like, what is up with this dude? That being said, though, no criminal history or anything like that. Yeah. So it just is it it is a bizarre it's a bizarre phone call. Yeah. And you got to think that the detective is thinking, okay, this is my prime suspect. I'm going to he wants him to keep talking, keep talking, you know what I mean? Just to get him. And what you want to do in this situation is you want to get him to keep talking about stuff. So as his story changes, you'll be able to have this stuff. You know, the yeah. fact that the kid's talking to him is like, yeah. The police always want you to keep talking. Yeah. They, they're they just gathering evidence, gathering evidence, gathering thing to like prove you're lying. So you should, if you're innocent, don't do this, what he's doing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Shut the fuck up. Yeah. Okay. So here's what we know. A severely injured Joe nodded yes when asked if Chris had done this to her, making him the main suspect. We also know that when the police scoped out the home, there was no indication that anything had been stolen, which makes the idea or the theory of a robbery gone wrong an unlikely motive for this attack. But when a reporter called Chris's Rochester dorm room, he answered the phone. Now, Rochester is about 230 miles from Del Mar. And the drive under normal circumstances would have taken about three hours and 30 minutes. So is Chris the guy who did this? And if he is, why did he do it? So after Chris was notified of this terrible news, he drove from Rochester back to his hometown and he met up with his uncle. And the two of them drove to the hospital to see how his mom was doing. So it's no surprise that the police were there waiting for him. He was the prime suspect after all. So once Chris arrives, he's immediately taken in for questioning, and then he's interrogated for six hours. So what he told the police is that on the morning of the attack, no one had been able to reach him because he was in a common area at his dorm and passed out in a dorm lounge on a couch, away from his room, away from his phone. So they also asked him for a DNA sample, and it's not clear what they were trying to compare it against at the scene. And it's also not clear what they would have done with it because he still had his own room at this house where this attack happened. He was there quite often. He's 19. He's coming home for all of his holidays, things like that. So I think it was more just to to take his temperature, see if he'd provide one. And he did. He cooperated. And Detective Bowdish was the one interrogating Chris. And he, you know, he has context all the way back from when this burglary happened two years prior. So here's a snippet of that exchange between Bowdish and Chris. Your mother's communicating. She's saying you were there at the house. I don't know why she would say that. She knows what happened. I hope she does. I was not there. 
So Chris's yellow Jeep was seized and searched for evidence. And they were looking for blood, but they didn't find any. And after such a brutal axe attack, you'd expect the perpetrator to have dragged some kind of evidence into the car with them. So how was it that Chris's Jeep was so clean if he was the one that did this? And while they didn't find blood in the car, they did find Chris's Easy Pass, which is this electronic device that automatically charges toll road fees to a credit card on file. And Chris would have had to have taken toll roads to drive from his college to attack his parents. So officers checked this Easy Pass that he had, but it wasn't activated and it revealed no transactions from that day or previous night. However, as they continued to search the vehicle, they did find something that could hold significance. It was a throughway ticket. And this is a toll bill in the state of New York. And that ticket had the same date as the night of the murder. So they confront Chris with this ticket. And he completely denied that it was his. Yeah. He just so happens to have a ticket mm. from a toll yeah. booth in, in his car. car. And it's not What his. a queen got to be somebody else's, so, though. Yeah, I, I collect them. Yes. All right. So his word wasn't enough for the officers. He denied the ticket was his. And it was sent for testing. And it came up positive for mitochondrial DNA which is the DNA that you only get from your mother. So to experts reviewing the results, the positive result meant that there is only a 1 in 100,000 chance that Chris, or someone biologically related to his mom, did not touch that ticket. And of course, the ticket was found inside of his Jeep and not anyone else's. So needless to say, one way or another, the police knew Chris was lying about this ticket, quote, not being his. But while we're on the subject of DNA, remember how Chris provided that DNA sample? Well, they couldn't find any DNA that matches Chris on that murder weapon. Remember the axe. Right. So what we have to acknowledge is that there are conflicting things occurring in the evidence, um, which really makes this a whole pickle for everybody involved. Quite a pickle. So while this Bethlehem police were trying to solve this case... Word of what had transpired began spreading through the community because this is a small town. And although there hadn't been an arrest, this rumor that Chris had killed his dad and attempted to kill his mom started to spread all around the place. And it spread all the way to our first degree Alex as she sat in her own college dorm room, not that far from where this was all going down. Well, I remember I was in school on AIM, of course. This was when I was in college. So he had already been in college for a few years. I, at this point, was going to the Fashion Institute in New York City. And I remember sitting in my dorm room on my computer and Jessie, who was my best friend in high school, sent me this message. She's like, did you hear about Chris Porco? And I was like, no, what happened? She's like, she killed his, he killed his dad. I was like, wait, what? And she's like, yeah, it's crazy. And I I vaguely remember, I feel like I kind of blacked out after she told me this. It's a shocking thing to digest. A person you know attacking and killing one of their parents with a fireman's axe. And just the blatant fact of like, how could somebody that I let close to me or, or almost let even closer to me be a murderer? It, it, it felt like my brain just kind of like did a blip and was like, nope, not today. I couldn't grasp the idea that somebody that I was so close to could have done something so evil. Like, I, re- I just couldn't wrap my head around it. Clearly, word of the death of Peter Porco and the attack on Joan was spreading. 
And as rumor had it, Chris was the prime suspect. And from where we're all sitting at this point, it looks really bad for Chris. It looks like he did it. But he hadn't been arrested yet. Hell, he hadn't even been charged. So was everyone rushing to judgment? Or are the circumstances of this case as obvious as they appear to be? These were the questions detectives were trying to answer. The investigator's next move was to head to the University of Rochester so they could interview Chris's fraternity brothers and friends. And when asked, they told investigators that, to their knowledge, Chris was not passed out on a couch in his dorm and was not in the common area after 10.30 p.m. the night prior to his parents' attack. In fact, some classmates said he was not seen on campus until 8 a.m. the following day. All right, so there are lots of questions... There's lots of potential explanations for why that he wasn't seen, but also maybe this is as glaring as it looks. Either way, the police needed to nail down their timeline a little bit better using what evidence they could. So they pulled the surveillance footage from the school. And when they observed it and sifted through it, they saw Chris's yellow Jeep leaving the campus at around 1030 the night before his parents were discovered. That's not looking good. No. And on the heels of discovering the throughway ticket, the police also interviewed two toll collectors. One in Rochester said a yellow Jeep with large tires passed through their toll at about 10.45 p.m. And then an Albany toll collector said that a yellow Jeep passed through with, quote, excessive speed shortly before 2 a.m. So if this was really Chris, it takes about three and a half hours to get between Rochester and Albany. So the timing here is checking out. And the police also had pulled records from the Porco's home alarm system and discovered that the alarm had actually been deactivated just after 2 a.m. when someone smashed the alarm panel. But here's the thing. Someone had entered the correct alarm deactivation code before the panel was smashed. So this means whoever, quote unquote, broke into the house was already equipped with the code and then staged it so it looked like a burglary. And let's not forget what court officer Michael Hart found when he arrived at the Porco home. A set of keys in the door lock. And another thing, when officers went through the house, they were looking for evidence of a robbery of some kind. But remember, nothing appeared to be missing. And there were expensive items in plain view. This meant that the only reasonable motive for trying to kill these people would have been a personal vendetta. Another chilling reveal was that the phone line to the Porco's home was severed at 4.59 a.m., the morning they were killed. So whoever attacked them didn't want his targets to be able to call for help. It's pretty chilling. The boy was like obviously on a mission. He drove down, broke into his own house. And by broke into, I mean, he like used the key and turned off the alarm, which obviously that's such a red flag. I mean, and not to make light of the whole situation, like the whole thing was amateur hour. This guy is not like a seasoned criminal. He's just a seasoned, crazy person. It's almost like he just said, like, well, what would they do? What would a burglar do on TV? Like, how would crimes be committed on TV? I'm going to cut the phone lines because that's what, like, a real criminal. Needless to say, to this point, evidence was really slanting towards Chris as the killer here. Meanwhile, the coroner had been working to piece together the attack that Peter had suffered. Those processing the scene determined that both Joan and Peter had been attacked in bed. Okay, well, if you've been listening, we know Peter was found at the bottom of the stairs. So that's weird. Peter had been struck with the axe an astonishing 16 times. 
The blows to Peter's head penetrated his skull and took off part of his jaw. The physician also said Peter would have been able to survive for a few hours after the initial attack. Okay, let's hold the phone for a second. So you might be a little confused because if you recall from the beginning of our episode, when court officer Michael Hart responded to the scene, he found Peter again at the bottom of the stairs. He found breakfast made in the kitchen. Peter was also dressed, not in his sleeping clothes. So this means, evidently, Peter walked downstairs and somehow attempted to go through his morning routine. How do we explain this? Well, the detectives investigated this in depth because they had to, because they had to figure out what exactly was going on. They determined that Peter had actually woken up after the attack. He then put on his clothes for work and walked downstairs. He then headed to the kitchen and made his breakfast, just like he would any other day. The blood evidence also showed that Peter walked to get the newspaper, and then the front door locked behind him. So then he would have had to gotten the spare key from the flower pot to open the door. And that explains why the court clerk officer, Hart, saw blood near the doorknob and saw that key that was still in the lock. Can you imagine seeing him out on your lawn if you're a neighbor? Oh, my God. When he's... I just... I'm sorry to interrupt. It's just... That is crazy. Yeah. I mean, this whole thing is fucking insane. I can't think of another time I've heard of something similar at all. I've heard of it one other time. Really? Yeah. Um... A very similar case that was investigated by Pat Pastiglione. We've had him on the podcast before. Yeah. Where somebody was attacked in bed and literally went through their routine, got up to pee, like got up, you know what I mean? Like did some things in the morning and uh, it's hard to under, it's hard to understand, but it happens. Yeah. I mean, the chances of that exact injury happening have to be like so minuscule. But the brain is just, there's so many different compartments to the brain. A lot of times when we're talking about left brain, right brain, forward brain, you know, it's just like, it really is true. And if one of those parts gets knocked out, the other parts take over. One gets knocked out and one still works. Yeah, You know, and in this case, it's like he wasn't feeling pain. He had no logic of what was happening. So he probably looked in the mirror and couldn't even register that he was injured. Yet, the part of your brain that adapts to habit or yeah. survivalism remained intact. Mm-hmm. And that's why he's like making breakfast where while well, like probably fueled by adrenaline. Yeah. Because he's bleeding yeah. out. Yeah. It's unbelievable. Unbelievable. And according to the coroner, after Peter entered the home, he attempted to head back upstairs, but that was when he probably collapsed at the bottom of the stairs and then he died moments later. Okay, so we're going to unpack this a little bit more. So according to Peter's autopsy, his brain was so severely injured that it struck through his neocortex. And the neocortex controls higher functions like perception, spatial reasoning, and conscious thought. And this is why Peter did not react appropriately to being fatally attacked. And the blows went so far deep into Peter's brain that his function of reasoning would have been greatly affected. However, and this is what's crazy. The autopsy also said that the axe did not penetrate his paleocortex of the brain. And the paleocortex is your primal instincts and sick second nature habits. And this explains why Peter was still able to perform his daily routine right up to the moment of his death. So crazy. We know that unfortunately, at some point, Peter did succumb to his injuries. 
And at the same time, Joan is laying in their bed, unable to move, still alive. It's it's truly awful to think about what they went through. They remained where they were until they were found by court officer Hart just after 11 a.m. And within the time all this information came together, police had found that additional surveillance footage had revealed that Chris had rolled back into campus in his yellow Jeep at 8.30 a.m. the morning of his parents' attack. So what his peers at school said was true. He had not, in fact, been passed out on a couch. They found surveillance evidence proving the contrary. So now the police had their timeline. They have an explanation of the scene and why there are some odd elements. But here's the thing. At this point, the DA did not believe that there was the physical evidence actually placing Chris at the scene of this crime to the point where they felt comfortable charging him. So although the police had made progress, they had a logical timeline, no charges could be filed yet, no arrest could be made yet. But they're looking at Chris as their guy and they're committed to building this case against him. And as speculation about Chris's involvement continued to run rampant, he just remained a free man and the weeks started to pass. Three weeks, to be exact. And Joan Porco had remained in a coma. And by now, doctors determined that Joan would in fact survive this attack and recover. And slowly, she began to regain consciousness. And this moment was one that the investigators had been waiting for. Because remember who Joan indicated as her attacker when she was asked as she was being rescued and taken to the hospital. Joan had nodded yes when Detective Bodish asked if Chris had been the one to do this to her and Peter. And now the only survivor of the attack was finally waking up and she would be able to say what actually happened and who was responsible. I think the most shocking thing about it was that his mom had originally gone into the hospital and said, you know, like Chris did it, Chris did it. And then when she quote unquote came to and could communicate better, she basically was like, oh, Chris didn't do this. It's not Chris. Joan said, Chris didn't do this. Her response was not at all what police were expecting. And her response would throw a giant twist into this case. A case that at first seemed so very cut and dry. huge thank you to Alex for being our first degree this week. She will be with us next week as well. If you're listening out there and you have a story to tell, you can email us hello at the first degree podcast.com. Follow us on Instagram at the first degree at Alexis Linkletter at Billy Jensen at Jack Vanek. Join our Facebook group. We are talking true crime all of the time and head over to our website and press the store button to grab some new merch. And lastly, stick around tomorrow because a brand new episode of Killing Time will be in your first degree feeds. Yeah. And remember, only you can prevent serial killers. And keep your friends close. But not that close. Wow, that sounded perfect in my ears. Happy so, Bring hey, Your Poet to Work Day. Happy Alien Friend happy Day. Happy Invite Your Alien to Your House Day. And, and Hot Dog Day and all the, all the days. days. Bye. Shout out to Jared Monaco for scoring and creating original music for The First Degree, producing by Caitlin Cleveland, producing and writing by Taylor Rogers, and producing by Alan Santiago for Podcast One. 
Sources for this episode include the Times Union, ABC News, CBS News, Troy Record, and the Saratogan. Saratogian, whatevs. And as always, our first three guest is always our largest source. You can start your day off right. When you find a professional on Angie to get your plumbing right first. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Visit Angie.com. You can do this when you Angie that.